You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. Last week saw the start of a campaign to publish surgical outcome data. Bruce Keogh, the driving force behind the publishing, joined Fiona Godley in our studio to talk about how we got here. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm delighted to have with me Professor Sir Bruce Keogh, the National Medical Director of the NHS. On the day, he announced the release of outcomes data from nine surgical specialties and cardiology. This has happened just over 12 years since the Bristol inquiry into child heart surgery in Bristol, where one of the major recommendations was that data, clinical outcome data, should be made available, made publicly available in this way. So Bruce, can you tell us a bit about the story that's led from that time to this? In 1977, cardiac surgeons started collecting activity and outcome data for every unit in the country. And that data was collected, it was anonymized, and it was fed back to the units. And some units took that data quite seriously, and others didn't. And then in the mid-1990s, problems began to emerge in Bristol, where a whistleblower, Steve Bolson, claimed that some babies were dying needlessly. And when that was looked at more closely, it turned out to be in particular two types of um, operations were not being conducted very well. One was uh, the arterial switch operation and the other was surgery for atrioventricular septal defect. And that eventually led to a massive uh, public inquiry which lasted three years and was chaired by Sir Ian Kennedy. And in the course of their deliberations, they looked at all sorts of data sources. And they came up with the view that there was plenty of data around to indicate there was a problem, including the data from the Society of Cardiothoracic Surgeons, which showed that there was a problem, but people weren't acting on it. So their view was that this anonymous feedback of, of data uh, didn't really work particularly in those units that didn't take it very seriously. So a couple of their recommenda- of their 198 recommendations um, alluded to the fact that they thought that it was important to publish individual um, surgeons' results. And that led to considerable pressure on us in the Society of uh, Cardiothoracic Surgeons, of which I was secretary at the time, to publish individual uh, surgeons' outcomes. And we resisted that quite vehemently. We resisted it on the grounds that um, the data was, uh, was dodgy, wasn't good enough at the time. We resisted it on the grounds that high-risk patients might be turned down. And we were concerned that um, the publication of data would resu- result in knee-jerk responses from medical directors, and, and uh, particularly in the media, which would lead to the vilification of perfectly good surgeons. But eventually the pressure became pretty strong. And we recognized as a group of surgeons that we needed to do something to rehabilitate the, the reputation of cardiac surgery after, after Bristol. So we started to develop a national database with about 150 data points, which we collected on every patient undergoing heart surgery, because that would enable us to not only understand our practice at a national level, 
but it would enable us to develop risk adjustment uh, methodologies. And that was going very well. And, um, and over the course of a number of years, we got to a very good position with that database. But meantime, the pressure was growing for the publication of individual surgeons' results. And we had suddenly an FOI request from The Guardian. And this was in about 2005, I think. Round about then, yeah. yeah. So The Guardian rang me up um, and said, you know the results of, uh, of surgeons? And I said yes, because um, I was coordinating the, um, uh, the data collection analysis at that time. And they said, um, we want to put in an FOI request. I said, well, that's all very interesting, but we don't accept a penny of taxpayers' money, so um, the Act, Freedom of Information Act, doesn't apply to us. Have a nice day. And um, at that time, we were also working with the with the Healthcare Commission on presenting unit-specific data. So they tried the Healthcare Commission, and the Healthcare Commission um, said that there was some clause uh, in the 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 Act which meant that they didn't have to give the information to the Guardian. So we thought, oh, that's fine. The next thing is, people started to ring me up and they said, did you know the Guardian have written to our trust asking for our results? So what they had done was they had gone to every individual trust. Now, when a chief executive gets an FOI request like this landing on their desk and they've got three or 500 consultants, they're not going to spend a lot of time worrying about giving the results out on um, three to six surgeons. So the Guardian got information, but it was interesting. It was, it was pretty poor initially. So some hospitals sent in risk-adjusted data, some sent in raw data, some sent in calendar years, some sent in financial years, some sent in first-time operations, some sent redo operations. So they sent out another FOI request defining the nature of the information they wanted in much more detail. And um, pretty soon they had good information on every cardiac surgeon in the country, and they published it in The Guardian. And that was when we realized that this was utterly irresistible. And so, we so, so a win for investigative journalism on that front. Indeed, Fiona. <laughs> <laughs> and um, conducted for the right reasons by people, by journalists who I regard highly, you know, people of great integrity. And the, the way they reported it was very responsible. And by that time, which was 2006, the writing was on the wall that this would eventually spread to, uh, to other specialties. I subsequently became, uh, towards the end of 2007, the NHS medical director. And one of the first things that I was asked to do by uh, politicians was to, to promote the publication of individual surgeon's results uh, in other specialties. And quite frankly, for five or six years, I resisted that simply on the basis that actually there were many other big issues that we had to tackle. And this was round about the time that Aradazi was doing his, uh, his review of the NHS as well. But during that time, the demand both from political colleagues, from the media, uh, the, the, the noise began to grow. The government produced their mandate um, which included in it the request for more data to be to be published. So I started to have a series of conversations with the presidents of 
of and, and audit leads of specialist associations where a number of them recognized the writing was on the wall and volunteered to to take part and indeed um, one of the presidents said why aren't you including us in your list so mm. the list began to grow and eventually we got to 10 now the thing that characterizes all of these is I didn't want to use administrative data for this sort of endeavor I thought it was sensible that we should use clinical audit data and the reason for that was quite simple the clinical audits are owned by the specialist associations they include the sort of data fields and information that clinicians um, regard as important and thirdly if we were to pursue this endeavor to the end point of everybody having to publish their um, their results it would force people who currently aren't to submit data into the into the national audits and that would give us a huge wealth of information about um, clinical practice in this country it would give the specialist associations great authority to speak uh, on behalf of their members and behalf of their patients on the areas where, where they have most expertise so um, I have to say I've been absolutely bowled over really by the leadership the vision, the courage that's been shown by surgical and cardiological colleagues in this because it is scary doing this. I know, you know, I've been there. It's really scary because you you worry about all the um, potentially adverse things that could happen as a result of this. People are fearful um, and people worry hugely about how the how the media are going to handle it. And in your view, how good are the data? How confident can the surgeons themselves, but also the public, be about the quality of the data? Um, you know, when you start these things, the the data's never as good as you would like. And, and that's where the courage comes in. Um, but data only becomes good when you use it. And this is an overt way of uh, of using that data. There will be people who will think we could have achieved the same results in terms of clinical governance without publishing the data, and indeed I've made those arguments myself. So I understand them completely. But this, is, a lot of this now is about um, public trust, uh, which has, which is high in the NHS and always has been. But I hope this will help to to give us a bit of a boost. It's worth interrupting here to say that since this was recorded, it became apparent that one group of surgeons, vascular surgeons, had their data published showing raw mortality rates, that is, unadjusted for risk and case mix. This led to at least one surgeon with an apparent death rate an order of magnitude higher than the national average. The society apologised and reissued the data in corrected form, but not before the newspapers here picked up on the story. And just on that, if I may, hmm. um, moving moving to the response, um, the, the the response from the profession, I suppose, to some extent, the wider profession, we have yet to hear hmm. uh, from the media. It's a rather a more immediate response, and I wondered if you could just give your your views on what some of the newspapers have done with this information. And perhaps perhaps for those who haven't seen it, it's important to say that the Telegraph and the Daily Mail have both used individual. Yeah. names of doctors, surgeons yeah. who have got less, the less good 
outcomes data attached to them. The majority of the media have handled this very responsibly. Others have um, have taken a view that there's a better story in, in highlighting um, perceived poor performers, and that saddens me. It saddens me deeply, actually, but, you know, we live in a democracy, and I've lived in a country where there hasn't been freedom of speech and where there's been a lot of censorship of the media. And one of the great things that this country offers is a free media and fr and and um, and freedom of speech. So we've got to we've got to accept that. But what I've also seen before in the early days of publishing this in cardiac surgery, it dies down really very very quickly. So it is very unpleasant f f for a while for those individuals. But it does it it does go. Also joining us was Ian Martin, current president of the Federation of Specialty Surgical Associations. They've stated that they're broadly in favour of the public availability of outcome data, but they have some concerns about the breadth and the quality of data that's currently available for that purpose. Mr Ian Martin. But it's more complicated than that. And uh, at one end of the spectrum, we've got cardiac surgery, the thing about cardiac surgery is, firstly, uh, there, are, it's, there are not too many units, so it's reasonably concentrated. Um, there aren't that many procedures which cardiac surgeons do, so there's not too much variability there. And because of that, individual surgeons actually do a relatively large number of uh, cases. Uh, there's a very well-established risk adjustment system called the Euroscore. It's been around for many years. It's very well validated. So that allows uh, a, a reasonable comparison between the risks of pa the, the risk between patients with uh, the similar sorts of risks to be made in terms of their general health uh, and indeed the amount of damage uh, that has occurred to the heart. So a good risk adjustment model, well validated. And finally, of course, the outcome measure is essentially a, a binary one, which is not disputed. It's death. And 30-day death occurs with sufficient frequency uh, in cardiac surgery for it actually to be, actually, uh, be a reasonable uh, sensitive and specific measure of outcome mm. for that particular specialty. Talking just about cardiac surgery there, I mean, in terms of the data for all the different uh, other specialties we have, I mean, yeah. how is the data for that going to be collected and, and brought together in a meaningful way that will actually make comparisons possible? In cardiac surgery, 100% of surgeons now contribute their data to the national audit. In bariatric surgery, we don't know exactly the number, but it's less than 100%. Uh, and that uh, is true of the other audits as well, uh, to a, very, you know, a greater or lesser extent. But there isn't necessarily 100% coverage in terms of submitting data. Head and neck cancer is one of the ones which is even more problematic in some ways. It's been very difficult identifying one, one surgeon who is particularly responsible for that because these patients are, are managed in MDTs and in particular, you may have for a complex head and neck cancer case, 
you know, three or four surgeons uh, of equal status actually participating in the care of that patient. To get round that, uh, we've tried to devise a system in which if you're involved in that case uh, as a consultant, that you will that, that the outcome of that case will be ascribed to you. But there are, there are other difficulties when you get down to that sort of audit because head and neck cancer involves, you know, a dozen different subsites, for example. Uh, and then when you break down the treatment options from very simple laser treatment for small cancers to major surgery with microvascular reconstruction for big cancers, you can see that we're starting to build up a very large number of variables for a relatively small number of complex patients who also have multiple comorbidities. And indeed, perioperative death uh, in that group of patients is you know, around the 0.1% level, not the 1.5% for coronary artery bypass grafting. So we've got a problem here in that mortality is not a good indicator of outcome for this group of patients. So what applies to cardiac surgery as being reasonably straightforward to do does not necessarily transfer to all of the other specialties where it can be very difficult to know exactly what a meaningful outcome is for those patients. Back to Fiona Godley and Bruce Keogh. So at the moment, it's a, it's a voluntary process, both in terms of the yeah. societies that have added, included yeah. their data and the doctors yeah. and the surgeons who are making their names available. And you're moving to a system where this will be much more mandatory and, assu- yes. uh, and assumed. Is that, yes. is that right? Yes. Now, one of the other considerations early on in this is that the media and some others tend to focus on mortality. I recognize entirely that mortality is a really bad outcome for, for some patients. But I also recognize that it's a pretty rare outcome. When Ara Darzi led his review of the NHS, we came up with a definition of quality, which was that any organization that's offering a service should offer an effective service, a safe service, and a decent patient experience. So those three domains underpin the definition of quality, which is now enshrined in law in this country. Which leads on to a question that people often ask, is how far can we take this in terms of away from surgery and into physicians, medical specialties, where one's talking about much greyer areas of clinical practice, but no doubt an equal need for openness and transparency, in my mind anyway. Yeah. It's in some areas it's really difficult, Fiona. I think most people can describe what they do. Not many can necessarily define how well they do it, and therein lies the challenge for us, because I think that's the essence of professionalism. And so when, when we look at the three domains of quality, which are now enshrined in law and were defined in, in, in Aradazi's review of effectiveness, safety, and patient experience, that opens up different avenues for us to, to measure how well we do things. So um, doctors are smart. They can work out effectiveness and how to measure that. They're smart. They can work out how to measure safety incidents. And then patients are also smart. They can work out um, whether... Uh, whether they found the experience reasonable or not. And so... Um, measures the, will emerge, you feel? Measures will emerge. You know, yeah. I don't think the measures are for, pe- for people in, um, in NHS England or the Department of Health or Monitor or CQC to think up. I think in a really... In, in a kind of 
vibrant professional environment, I think those measures will emerge. And it then becomes the job of NHS England, Monitor, the CQC and others to pick up those measures, the sorts of measures that patients and doctors think are useful. And do you think that this initiative might um, help to bring about one of Robert Francis's recommendations was the idea that we must have a named senior doctor in charge of each patient. Um, do you think that doctors will begin, to, and surgeons as well, begin to take responsibility much more for the total care of that patient because the outcome of that patient is going to be on their books, so to speak? I, I personally do agree with that, but I accept that there are legitimate alternative views. So let me explain. In surgery, some people who objected to this said, oh, but you know, it's all part of a surgical team. Um, but teams have to have leaders, and those leaders have to be accountable. And when, so that's one angle. The other thing is when a patient comes into a clinic, they see the surgeon. The surgeon has a discussion with them, tells them, these are the potential benefits, these are the potential risks, so on and so forth. And the agreement to proceed with surgery is between the surgeon and the, and the patient. It's not between the other members of the team. And therefore, in my view, for surgical procedures, the consultant surgeon has to be accountable. Um, and I don't think many surgeons would, would argue with that. Would you uh, say that this puts Britain, England in particular, well ahead of the rest of the world? This takes us quite a way forward, does it? This is an absolute global first. It's never been done in any other country. It, it really shows, to my mind, that, um, that our surgeons are visionary, pragmatic and courageous. And I also see this in a, in a much bigger context. This, to my mind, is not just about surgery. Actually, this is much bigger than surgery because, Fiona, you, you and all the BMJ readers over the last two years will have noticed that a number of the great public British institutions have, have suffered what the media calls scandals and that would include um, the NHS, MPs and Parliament, the police, the BBC, and the CQC more recently. And what, what you see is the initial response when that happens is for people to clam up and to go secret. And actually the real solution to regaining public trust is, in my view, openness, transparency, and honesty. And, um, you know, that's been a clear message that's come out of Robert Francis's review. So I think what our surgeons have done in this country is they've shown the rest of the public services that openness and transparency um, actually sh can help to regain trust. But most importantly, um, I think Surgical colleagues can hold their heads up high and say, these are our results. This is how we perform. We're up to the best international standards, and um, we're prepared to stand up and be counted and be scrutinized.
And there's more on the publishing of surgical outcome data on bmj.com. Links from the podcast page. Also published this week is the updated version of WHO's Guidelines and Global Progress Report on HIV AIDS. To find out more, Anne Gulland, a journalist for the BMJ, talked to Gottfried Hernschel, who's director of, and Philippa Easterbrook, who's a scientist at, the WHO's HIV AIDS department. Why are we launching new guidelines? Since 2010, there have been major advances in science, new studies, new results, new findings. Uh, There have been very encouraging experiences in countries, countries that were able to scale up treatment considerably uh, to the people who need it. And there are better, safer and uh, also cheaper medicines available now and also technology, specifically diagnostics. These new recommendations coming out of the guidelines are, uh, I would say, quite innovative, forward-looking and uh, quite exciting. They propose that uh, individuals uh, that are HIV positive would start treatment earlier. They also propose that uh, um, one single pill daily would be given to to people on treatment. They also propose better service delivery and better monitoring of the patients once they are on treatment. We are optimistic. We are also now seeing, and that's another report that we are launching, the Global Treatment Report, that overall close to 10 million people are now accessing treatment, which is uh, considerably more than just 10 years ago, where it was about 300,000 in low- and middle-income countries. Uh, we are seeing specifically a major increase uh, of of this figure in uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, but also in other in other parts in other countries. We are also seeing that uh, mother-to-child transmission is really addressed very successfully by countries. And for example, we are seeing that uh, 900,000 women uh, have been receiving uh, antiretroviral medicines to prevent transmission to their babies. And that uh, probably about 800,000 child infections have been uh, averted over the last few years due to due to this treatment. And we're also seeing that uh, about uh, 4 million, 4.2 million people uh, have been, uh, uh, lives have been saved uh, due to, to antiretroviral treatment over the last decade. Well, just to highlight the most important recommendations in the, in the guidelines, as Dr. Hernschel has said, we're recommending treating people earlier than we've ever recommended before and before the immune system is, is damaged. We're recommending treating all pregnant women and breastfeeding women, uh, regardless of their stage of disease, all children less than five years as soon as possible. And we're also recommending this single pill containing three drugs uh, once a day, which is a highly effective and safer uh, treatment than has been used previously, um, and a better way of monitoring using the viral load test. Another important part of the guidelines is uh, the recommendations on more efficient ways of delivering the HIV treatment and organizing the HIV services in three ways, uh, what we call integration, decentralization, and task shifting. By that, I mean bringing services together Um, That's integration so that treatment can be delivered in other settings like antenatal clinics or TB clinics. Um, 
With the decentralization, this means making the treatment available in peripheral health centers rather than just in the large urban centers. And finally, because many more people uh, are in need of treatment and there is a limited number of doctors, um, to have other groups of health workers playing a more important role in starting and delivering treatment. This is what we mean by task shifting. Could you tell us a bit about the costs of this, these new guidelines and who is going to pay for the drugs and the additional people that will be on the treatment? With the new guidelines, uh, many more people will become eligible for treatment. The estimated number globally is 26 million people. It's, it's quite a considerable increase. Uh, what that will mean, uh, obviously, is uh, that uh, this will cost more. Mm. What we estimate in terms of annual costs needed for a fully funded response, so that goes way beyond uh, the use of antiretroviral drugs, but also speaks to other prevention interventions. And there we estimate it's 22.24 billion US dollars per year. With the new guidelines, we think that over the next few years there will be a, a, an estimated 10% increase, uh, which in, in uh, of that number of this 22 to 24 billion. Uh, we also think that with the in increased volume of, of, of medicines that will be required, there might well be a further reduction in the prices of drugs. We also see think that uh, there are further uh, cost savings possible through a efficiency gains in the way the services are delivered, specifically, as has been mentioned, through integrating HIV care into other services, general services, antenatal care services, etc. But also, uh, through the uh, benefit of reducing uh, new infections, we think that over time uh, there will be uh, cost savings along this, uh, in, in this aspect as well. Mm. Fewer people will become infected, fewer people will eventually require drugs, and ultimately the epidemic will decline. Um, has, is there a sort of peak year when you know, you'll hit the, the highest number? If we assume the, uh, a similar increase uh, over the, last, uh, over the uh, coming years as during the last year, which was adding 1.6 million people uh, per year, then we estimate that the peak time may be around 2020-2021, where about 24.5 million people would be uh, on treatment, and that might well be the peak. After that, again, with uh, fewer people uh, being infected and becoming eligible for treatment, we think there might be a decline, there would be a decline. And, and are you confident that countries will be able to implement the guidelines quite easily? Well, I wouldn't say it's easy. Uh, obviously, we are raising the, 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 the bar is being raised here, and uh, it will require uh, sustained investments and, 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 and very uh, strong attention. As we also know HIV is not the only issue that countries are dealing with, so we, we, we very much work with countries and encourage countries to uh, link very much the uh, HIV agenda with that of uh, maternal and child health. So really to embed the HIV response into the broader health and development context to sustain the attention that is needed over the years. And just to, to add that the HIV department at WHO monitors carefully um, how countries uh, uh, respond to, to the guidelines and a recent survey showed that more than 90% of the countries we surveyed um, had adopted the 2010 recommendations 
which was a lower threshold of a CD4 count of 350. So I think there is a very close partnership with supporting countries uh, and, and regions in adopting the guidelines and over a three-year period, the majority of countries had been able to uh, uh, adopt the 2010 recommendations. Okay, well, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this week. Over the weekend, a group of coders and doctors are going to try and hack the BMJ, and we'll be reporting from that. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.